Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nafisa Andrabi, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Brian Foster about his new book, I Don't Like the Blues, Race, Place, and the Backbeat of Black Life. Brian is an assistant professor of sociology and Southern studies at the University of Mississippi. He received his PhD in sociology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I'm also a current PhD student in the Department of Sociology. So I'm particularly excited about the opportunity to chat with Brian today. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Tar Heel, Tar Heel. It's good to be here. <laughs> Brian, I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I am a thing that I say often. I'm a black boy from Shannon, Mississippi, born and raised, small town, Northeast Mississippi, um, grew up in a place where family um, and the land and community were, were kind of values that were instilled and, and values that I that I carry with me all this way. Um, I often talk about my journey from there to here as as one of leaving and coming back. And, and Mississippi's Mississippi has always been been kind of the anchor. I graduated high school in 2007 and spent some time in Minnesota uh, at a small liberal arts school. My my dad passed away. I had some family things happen, and, and that brought me back. So that was kind of this first iteration of leaving and then coming back. Uh, when I came back that first time, I enrolled at the University of Mississippi, where I, I finished my undergrad degree in FM in 2011. And once again, I was leaving. I left for, for where you are, for UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, where I spent a few years, got through coursework and comps, uh, and then again came back to Mississippi this time for for the field work um, that that was a part of my dissertation work that has become the book. I don't like the blues. Uh, and right on the back end of field work, actually, the um, the position that I'm currently working in, assistant professor of sociology and southern studies, 
kind of came across my radar. I applied, things went well. Uh, and, and not too long after I wrapped up field work and had started the process of kind of trying to process and, and analyze all the data that I had collected and, and try and fashion that into a dissertation that made some sense. I was once again moving back. I was once again returning to Mississippi um, to to work, to work at my alma mater. And and in that first year back, I was finishing the dissertation. That went well. I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if that went well or not. But it went. I got done. I got to the end. Uh, and then pretty quickly thereafter, transitioned to to thinking of ways of of making the dissertation a book. Uh, that would be something I, that I'd be proud of, something that would would kind of add to the discipline. Um, and also, I think, challenge the discipline in some ways, challenge the way that, that we as sociologists um, communicate our work. And so, yeah, that's that's the story. It's it's Mississippi is always there kind of front and center and in the background, leaving, coming back, leaving, coming back. Uh, and right now, in addition to to conversations about the book, I'm engaged in any number of other projects that are that are place based, and the place again right now is Mississippi. So that's a little bit about me, and I'm I'm super happy to be here and happy to talk about the book a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that. Wait, I just have to ask, what was the small liberal arts college in Minnesota? Because oh, I yeah. also went to a small liberal arts college in Minnesota <laughs> for two years yeah. before dropping out. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, McAllister College. Okay. I went to Carleton for yeah, my first okay. two and a half years. I know Carleton for sure. <laughs> That's wild. Um, okay. So thank you for that. That's a, a really beautiful backstory of sort of coming home and coming again and yeah. seeing it in a different way every time you come back. Uh, and to that end, I sort of wonder, how did you come to write I Don't Like the Blues? I, I know it was your dissertation, but how did yeah. you come into this dissertation idea? Did you always want to write about your home or sort of what was the process in graduate school for you sure. coming into this topic and into this content? Yeah, I, I got to Chapel Hill thinking and I think earnestly wanting to to be a scholar of race and education. Um, I I pretty quickly... Pretty quickly after getting to UNC Chapel Hill, I I took an interest in the work of Dr. Carolyn Tyson, um, and and carried that that work that interest in in race and education through the master's uh, part of the program through my first couple of years. Wrote a wrote a master's thesis, um, quantitative paper on race and education, and and funny enough, that is the that's the interest or the set of interests that that attracted me. Um, to Mississippi in the beginning, I knew when I got to the dissertation stage uh, that I that I wanted to do something ethnographic. I wanted to go somewhere uh, and be in a place and think about this set of questions that I had. I wanted to talk to folks and be with folks. Uh, but again, at first, it was about education. It was rooted in understanding, uh, in particular, the experiences of Black students in schools especially Black students in schools in the South. In those first few years in, in Chapel Hill, I was reading and working through the literature and, and hearing about the experiences of students in Chicago and in D.C. and Boston. And I knew from my own experiences um, in Mississippi, in rural Mississippi, that that what I was reading and hearing about just didn't quite fit with what I had experienced and what I knew that that other folks, family and friends had experienced. 
And so I came back to Mississippi looking for that story. I was initially uh, going to move to, to a town in central Mississippi, Meridian, uh, doing some, I wanted to do some work around the school to prison pipeline. And there was going to be an opportunity to do that there. There's a Department of Justice investigation happening. Uh, and then Clarksdale came on my radar for, for a couple of pretty, pretty simple and surface reasons. Uh, there was a Black superintendent who had just, I think he was in his, his first year. It's also one of the elementary schools in Clarksdale was dealing with a, with a uh, cheating scandal. And so I moved to Clarksdale really on the strength of seeing a few stories uh, about those two developments. And, and then pretty quickly after getting to Clarksdale, uh, and I think, I think as good ethnography should, I sort of followed where the folks who I was meeting and talking to led me and pushed me. Uh, and, and the place that they led me and pushed me was, was toward the blues, uh, as is the case with, with most anything that happens in Clarksdale. It is a blues place, as I, as I try to outline in the book. Um, and, and I always talk about, and, and I guess the more folks hear me talk, they'll get tired of hearing the story of, of this conversation with, with the woman that I call Miss Irene, who we meet in the introduction. But it's really in that conversation where, where the shape of this project really, really starts to materialize uh, and become clear to me. It's, it's in this conversation where I, I hear her say, on one hand, I love the guy who sings Mom's Apple Pie. His name is Tyrone Davis. That's a Southern Soul, a Southern Soul blues song and a Southern Soul blues singer. And then she says, I don't like the blues. And then she says all of these things about blues tourism in Clarksdale, three distinct ways of talking about the blues that at first take uh, were incoherent or incompatible. Uh, and so the project in that moment, and I knew it then, I knew it when I was sitting in her office and we were talking on that morning. Uh, that that this would be a project that was about understanding, A, the different ways that folks in this place think about and talk about and understand the blues and, and finding the, the points of commonality, finding um, finding or, or, or maybe sketching the epistemology that would be required for all of these different ways to kind of fit. How can you love the guy who sings a blues song and not like the blues, though you live in a place that is, of all the places in the world, right, one of the more well-known um, kind of blues tourism destinations that there that there are. And so, uh, and so that became that. That's the moment where the shape of the project became clear. Uh, and and it's over the next. I think I, I talked to Miss Irene in in month. I think it's three or maybe month four. But over the next year or so. Uh, when I was living in Mississippi and in Clarksdale, and then over the next few years, that in in that process of leaving, coming back to going back to Chapel Hill to write the dissertation, coming back to as assistant professor, and then reengaging with field work, it's in that time where uh, where some of the other parts of the project become clear to me too. Yeah, thank you for that. I I think this idea of of people-centered storytelling, right? And being yeah. flexible in the process uh, is so is is true. And often I think earlier in graduate school and, and in sort of the career trajectory as a social scientist can be uh, hard to come to terms with, right? Of being able oh, to let let projects and ideas go quickly and you know shed old ones for new ones and and really be able to go where the the story is taking you rather than being married to 
to the design of, of the initial project is is tough look, as I'm learning. I won't say I, I, look. I won't say that for me it was quick either. <laughs> it 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 was it was a, a kind of an extended and difficult process changing directions, shifting gears. There's a type of inertia, right, that, that we generate from all of the materials that we read in in thinking through in, in those early phases of a project. I had taken trips to Meridian. I had I had identified the place I was going to be living. I had started to talk to folks on the ground. That's a lot of inertia. I had field notes uh, that I had already started to draft in in and um and, and sort of keep in my in my database uh, and so yeah there's a there's an inertia that you generate the more you work on the project and shifting gears uh not easy for me not quick uh and 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 also both early and throughout the process just just generally difficult so um you know i'm i, I know we'll talk at some point a little later about methods and process uh, and so and so maybe we'll we'll come back here but but yeah, I think it's just worth saying, you know, it's it's not easy or quick, but I think uh, especially in ethnographic work um, and, and, and especially ethnographic work that uses the language of grounded theory, I think it's our responsibility to do the work, no matter how slow or difficult of of following where the folks uh, where the folks lead us. Yeah, absolutely. I think maintaining that that value as we're going through our work is is really important. Um, I, so you started telling us a little bit about Clarksdale and how you ended up there. Uh, is there anything else that we should know about Clarksdale? It's a community that you describe really beautifully in the book. Uh, and I wonder if you just wanted to say a few words about, you know, what is Clarksdale? Where is it? What's it like? Sure, sure. sure. Clarksdale is a medium-sized town, um, in the Northern part of the Mississippi Delta, Mississippi is a place that for, for folks, especially who are not from here or familiar with it, folks folks tend to actually think of, like, they talk about Mississippi as if it's like a town, uh, as if it's a, as if it's one, um, one place where everybody knows everybody, right? Like, I, it's it's funny to meet meet folks and, and they learn that I'm from Mississippi and they'll ask me if I know the one person that they met seven years ago from Mississippi. Um, so, so I guess contrary to kind of conventional thinking, Mississippi is, is, is an expansive state, uh, with actually different kind of regions, different, different cultures, different pockets. The there's the Gulf Coast, which is down South. There's the Piney Woods, which is like central Mississippi. There's the Hill Country, Northeast Mississippi. And then there is the Mississippi Delta which is this region of, let's say, 11 counties. I say it in that way because depending on who you talk to, some will say the Delta is seven counties, some will say 13 or 14 or 17 counties. But in general, this region of about 11 counties in the central, western, and northwestern part of the state. Clarksdale is a town in the northern part of the Delta, about an hour south of Memphis, predominantly black town. Um, and and it's it's... In the last 40 years, especially, right, as I, as I chronicle early on in the book, has, has kind of turned to trading on its, its blues history, uh, its connection with, with blues music, which is a part of, of Clarksdale's kind of cultural history. The blues is a cultural form with roots in Clarksdale, in the Delta broadly, 
uh, but but in particular in Clarksdale. Uh, and, and then there's this moment in the last 40 years uh, in response to, if you listen to the stakeholders and elected officials, uh, they will say that that this emphasis on, on heritage tourism, again, which in Clarksdale manifests as this emphasis on blues tourism, uh, is it, it comes about as a response to an economic crisis in the Delta, what we might call an economic crisis or a development crisis. That's, that kind of results from the confluence of a lot of different things. We know um, beginning, well, I guess we could begin in, in, in any number of places, but, but if we say we begin with, with the Depression and the New Deal of the 30s, we know that in the next, that, that next 30 or 40 years, there's this, this massive um, out-migration of, of Black folks and mass eviction of Black sharecroppers and tenant farmers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and the Delta not overnight, but in a, in a relatively short period of time, becomes a place of impossible poverty. Uh, and poverty that looks like the, the, the Delta has always been a place of, of uh, in which certain groups of folks, in particular Black folks, have challenging, so, like have to deal and contend with challenging socioeconomic or structural conditions from, you know, from enslavement to, to sharecropping and tenant farming. But when we get to the 60s and 70s, uh, the nature of of the challenges that Delta communities face kind of changes, uh, and the Delta becomes the face of poverty uh, in the in the in the U.S. in America. So there are these poverty tours where presidents and other elected officials uh, pass through different towns in the Delta, Clarksdale being one of them, uh, pass through different towns in the Delta to hear from folks on the ground. Of course, there are all of those photo ops that we know are so important to politicians. Uh, and, and in response to this moment, there, there's this push, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to, to help ourselves, so to speak? For Clarksdale, those efforts become this, this blues campaign uh, where we get this influx of, of festivals and heritage markers, heritage sites, museums, clubs, so forth and so on. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, so Clarksdale is a, it's a, it's a place that is, fundamental to um, the, the kind of the, the, the macro, the grand narrative of the Delta uh, and the place that in recent years we sort of see. I mean, I think, it, I think it's, it allows for lots of different conversations about what's happening in the state of Mississippi and a writ large. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could say more. I, I, I feel like I've kind of been all over the place a little bit already. I could say more, but I think that's a pretty workable kind of backdrop for for what Clarksdale is, and especially for what Clarksdale is uh, in terms of what I try to do and I don't like the blues. That was great. And it actually touches on a few things I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. I have to say, sure. I, I laughed when I read the bit about how the main economies in that Delta region were agriculture, manufacturing, and the blues, because it just, <laughs> you know, it just, it, you know, I never, I just hadn't thought about yeah. that. And yeah. they don't, uh -huh. they sit different together. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, you talk a little bit about how the region has this blues commission and this blues development agenda. And yeah. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, tell us more about that commission and also sort of what do you see as the consequences of the development of that commission and that agenda on sure. uh, race and place in this, in Clarksdale? So, so the, um, the the blues story, the the kind of blues development story in the develop in the Delta starts kind of as this informal thing 
uh, excuse me, it really peaks uh, with the establishment of the Mississippi Blues Commission in the early 2000s. Uh, the origins of, right, the beginning of, of this, of the blues development stories, actually the, the end of the 1970s, and the early 1980s, there's this actually a, this sort of national revival uh, in interest in the blues. And, and it trickles down to places like Clarksdale in, in the way of, at first, a small collection of blues festivals, kind of very small scale deals where blues enthusiasts and, and local stakeholders meet, um, you know, think, think a few thousand folks. Again, late 70s, early 80s, and pretty quickly, pretty quickly in the 80s when folks start to see that, oh, okay, this is a thing that these are, this is something that, that lots of people actually have interest in. This is a thing that, that actually attracts folks, not just locally, but from other states in the country, not just from other states in the country, but from, from other internationally. Uh, and so and so you see from 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 the 80s to, to to the early 90s, you start to see resources, local resources being poured into uh, into the what we could call like the blues infrastructure of festivals and performance venues and so forth and so on. Uh, and by the 90s, we start to see not just resources being poured into uh, into the infrastructure, but we see um, we see additions to the infrastructure. Right. Where where. By the by, but you know, in the in the '90s, we see the the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale gets its own space, right? So there there are actually dedicated spaces for uh, for the different ways that folks like to engage with with the blues. And then by the early 2000s, um, and and this is this is Governor Haley Barber in 2003, who in his uh, State of the State address essentially says, "We've we've long been a state where." Our economy runs on agriculture and manufacturing. What happens, he says, if we include heritage tourism and hospitality? What, what happens if we emphasize that uh, and include that as a part of our our kind of grand economic development plan? Uh, and in it's 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 in his first set of of decisions, in the first set of decisions that Governor Barber makes. Uh, this is his first term as governor um, that he reconstitutes the the Blues Commission, and that language is the the kind of reconstitution language is simply to say that that there had been conversations about a Blues Commission uh, with the previous governor, Ronnie Musgrove, and you know it's a longer story about why that did not uh, kind of manifest or crystallize. But Governor Barber comes in two thousand three uh, and. And reconstitutes the Blues Commission, which essentially serves as as a clearinghouse. I think if I'm using that word correctly, correctly, or um, sort of the the, the it, it it try it connects these different pockets of of for the Delta in the Delta Blues tourism spaces in other parts of the state heritage tourism spaces, but it kind of connects all of these different uh, kind of autonomous spaces in one coherent framework um and and we've seen even since the since the early 2000s the continued emphasis in Clarksdale and across the delta uh increasing this continued emphasis on tourism as as something that the region can count on not just to to 
kind of reinforce its its this this idea this this sense of a of a regional identity. This is a blue. The Delta is a blues place. The Delta is a place where you come if you want to if you want to get a taste of the real authentic South or or the real authentic Mississippi. Um, so not but not just as a as a kind of a, a a node of regional identity, but again as an economic development um, tool as an economic engine. And in, in thinking about the consequences for for race and place in Clarksdale, for folks in Clarksdale and in places like Clarksdale, uh, I, you know, I, the, I, I, here is how, here is how I like to talk about the, uh, kind of the, the, how effective the, the development agenda, the blues development agenda in the Delta has been. It's, I say, Hey, people will often ask, like, has it been a success? And I say, absolutely. It has the idea. The idea was, Hey, if we emphasize blues, blues tourism, if we offer folks places to spend their money, we have dozens of festivals each year, have some performance venues, make sure we have enough live music and museums and heritage marketers and specialty shops. If we do all of these things, people will come and they will spend their money uh, and that will boost the economy here. If that's the premise, and absolutely, the development agenda has been a success. And, and as I've mentioned, if you go to Clarksdale now, uh, COVID has disrupted so much. So maybe saying like right now is, is a tricky thing. Uh, but pre-COVID, and, and I think once things return to normal, if you, if you visit Clarksdale, you'll see that the blues is still very much alive and a part of the economic development agenda. So, yeah, it's been a success. Uh, the question, I think, as always, when, when thinking about community level outcomes, especially when thinking about issues of race, um, the question always for whom? Been successful for whom? Benefited which communities? And what we know both from the data, from, from basic demographic data, poverty, median household income, and what I hope I don't like the blues does an effective job of showing in terms of lived experience and local perceptions. Uh, it has not been the blues development agenda successful, uh, beneficial for, for the communities in Clarksdale that have historically uh, and contemporarily been most vulnerable and most in need black communities. That's what the data say. That's also what folks say. Yeah, I was, I was gonna ask but you've basically already answered it, which is, is investing in blues ter- tourism the same as investing in black communities in the Delta region? And Yeah, I really appreciate that, that phrasing. Uh, I think that most of the, I think elected officials and stakeholders and many of the folks who, um, who find the most enjoyment in, uh, in Clarksdale's blues offerings, I think that they would say that yes, to invest in the blues is to invest in black communities. Uh, there is, uh, and I've gotten comments and had conversations about the title of the book. Uh, and, and there's a blurb on the back of the book to this same effect that, that for a lot of folks, uh, the blues and black Mississippians, like, or the blues and black communities, like those things are, are, are the same, are synonymous. Uh, and, and in some ways, I make that argument in the book, and I, and I do believe that to be true. Uh, but the way that I think about the blues in that context is different uh, from 
uh, from the way that that elected officials and superintendents and so forth and so on think of the blues as as a cultural form, as music and performance. Uh, and so, so I, I appreciate the the phrasing of the question. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty hard no no investment in in the blues, which the Delta in Clarksdale has done an excellent job uh, at in the last 40 years. No, that is not tantamount to to investing in in black communities, at least not at least not in in Clarksdale's iteration of the blues and not for black communities in Clarksdale. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, this is making me think about how, you know, how has blues, has uh, the, the blues as sort of a concept and an industry and an idea become sort of like a, a fill-in or a, a a placeholder for black identity or for blackness or for a black person, right? Like how does an, a sort of object like fill in? And, yeah. and is there a, you know, has has the blues always been racialized in sort of the American imagination? And, you know, I, I mean, I have half-baked thoughts on that. I'm just wondering if you have any, any yeah, ideas. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a book, Escaping the Delta, Elijah Wald, that I think it's Wald, W-A-L-D, W-A-L-D is how you spell his last name, um, that, that I think does a pretty good job of, of like, problematizing the conflation of race, in particular blackness, uh, and the blues. But in general, yes, I would say that from day one, right, we don't the 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 cultural kind of features of the blues, how the blues sounds, the sound of blues music, that was before we got the language of blues. Right. So so black folks were singing field hollers, work songs. Black folks were were making music uh, and music that maps on to what we think of and know of as the blues before we got the language of the blues. We don't get the language of the blues. We don't get the blues moniker until the early 1900s. Uh, and it's in this moment, in the early 1900s, where blues kind of falls under this broader umbrella of race music, which basically all of the music that Black people are making and singing and doing. Uh, and, and then over time, as we know of kind of the development of music genres, um, the blues kind of uh, uh, evolves into, into a distinctive music genre with these different sub styles, but still always and already race music, which means always and already Black music. Uh, and, 
And I think that kind of maps onto broader, like our broader tendency, a bigger tendency to to think of of like I, I think of this of, of a recent study, and I actually I don't know how recent it is, or maybe the last few years or five years or whatever, uh, where students expect black students have this uh, college students have uh, the expectation or an expectation that black professors are are supposed to perform for them, um, are supposed to to deliver material in a way that is distinctive from what they expect of of non-black professors uh and 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 i think it's right so i think that kind of um like that speaks to this broader tendency to think of of blackness as 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 like a category of of performance or or think like athletics or like it's it's Black folks are always expected to offer, like to, I'm thinking of Kevin Kwashi's work, to, to offer something for the public. Um, and so conflating the blues and Blackness or conflating the blues and Black folks, I think fits in, uh, kind of in with that, that, that more general tendency uh, that I think is, is, is kind of a function product of, uh, of the American racial project. Um, for me, and, and and there are other folks whose work uh, kind of lay the foundation uh, here, and, and I'm thinking in particular of of Clyde Woods and Development Arrested, whose work I, I cite quite a bit in the book. Uh, for me, the blues is is only partly about music and performance. The way that I think about and talk about and and hear, and I don't like the blues, write about the blues is as as an epistemology as a way of seeing and being in the world, of making sense of, of one's daily lived experience. And there are any number of things that are a part of that seeing and being and making sense of. One little part of that is what we hear when we, you know, on our Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, um, but, but Black life is so much more expansive than that. The, the the strategies, the behaviors, the sensibilities that Black folks have developed and adopted, right? As we've as we've put simply, tried to get from Sunday to Saturday, from Monday to Sunday, to to survive the ebbs and flows of American racism, um, extends so much far beyond beyond the music, um, but often often is uh, at least when we think about the blues or when folks talk about the blues just kind of doesn't appear on the radar at all. The blues is music, the blues is performance, uh, and and that's kind of it. And that's kind of it. So yeah, I kind of got a little bit off the rails there. I don't you can you can help bring me back in if you've got a more direct one more direct question or follow up. No, no, this was yeah. this was great. I've I've been loving hearing you talk about this. I you know and I was just thinking about, you know, is the blues still and I think you you know you talk about this in the book at various points, but is the blues still meaningful for Black, Black Clark's Dalians. Is that how you pronounce it? Clark's Dalians? Yes, yeah, Clark's Dalians. Black yeah. Clark's Dalians, um, a term that comes up often in the book. Mm-hmm. Or is the way that it serves blues t- tourism in the region, um, has that sort of stripped the meaningfulness of blues from from the Black Clark's Dalians? I, I really appreciate that question. Um, it's, it's kind of... <laughs> Is the answer is like yes and no. Uh, it's and and to come back to Miss Irene, I mean, I could go to other folks. Uh, you 
if you if you talk to folks about blues music and and define blues music for the expansive category that it is to include, for example, Southern Soul Blues. Um, so Sir Charles or Jackie Neal or Marvin Seeks or Bobby Rush. Um, Black folks in Clarksdale and in Mississippi and in the South love the blues. Go to a Bobby Rush concert. Turn on some Betty Wright or Jackie Neal at a cookout. Black folks absolutely love the blues. If after after a funeral, after a death and a funeral, and you and and you go and sit with a family, you gonna hear some music and you gonna hear some blues. And hearing the blues in that context is on purpose. I want to hear some blues. What Black folks in Clarksdale are responding to, the I don't like the blues sensibility, is more like, I don't like what the blues has become in this place. I don't like how the blues has been leveraged uh, in this place. And, and, and so it's, it's a, it's, it's, I won't call it a sleight of hand, um, but it's, it registers differently, the it being blues, it registers differently for folks. In some ways, the blues is the art itself, is the music, the sounds itself. Black folks love that. In some ways, blues is a memory, it's a set of memories, it's a callback to, to hard times, to struggle times, they often say, from the past. And Black folks revere that but they say they don't want to go back to that. And then, of course, in Clarksdale, the blues is Ground Zero Blues Club and the Joint Blues Festival and the Blues Trail Markers and all of these different things that have become a part of the local economy, things and a local economy that Black folks do not feel that they benefit from, do not feel that, like, they don't feel like those things account for, for their perspectives and their interests, um, and they don't feel a part of it. Uh, and so. And and that's the blues that they don't like. So it's it's a lot it's a lot happening um, at once, as 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 is often the case for for black folks, as as is often the case in matters of of black identity and, and sensibility. Um, there there's like an A side and a B side uh, to to think about the work of my mentor, uh, Dr. Zandria Robinson. Um, so yeah, I, but I I I, I laugh because I, I really appreciate appreciate that question. No, thank you. I, I mean, there's, yeah, I, I have so many other things I could ask about, but I think that um, maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned blues epistemology yeah. and it's something you talk about uh, at various points in the book and, you know, you've described it a little bit, but I wonder if you had anything else to say about it and also how, you know, how can we and should we be thinking about blues epistemology as a, um, as an idea and a way of understanding, you know, the world around us. Yeah. So I, I, in, in Development Arrested, Clyde Woods, and he mentions this in passing, and I, and I try to do some work of fleshing it out in the book, uh, but he gives this, this kind of what I think is a useful metaphor. Uh, and, and I have the book here, and I'm on page 19, and this is a quote pulled from, from Development Arrested from the book. Um, Woods writes, like other traditions of interpretation, it is not a monolith, but it being this kind of blue, this ethno-regional epistemology, this blues epistemology. It's not a monolith. There are branches, roots, and a trunk. 
Uh, and and I think that's useful in in kind of helping us think about practically in practical ways what uh, the blues epistemology is, what a blues epistemology is. Wood's situation, I follow him, the, the kind of root of the blues epistemology in a simple and singular desire, humanistic autonomy. Black folks, for, for Woods' work in the Mississippi Delta, for my work in the Mississippi Delta, I think we would both say, and by extension for, for Black folks, especially in the rural South, a desire to be seen as human, a desire to, to be able to, to, to have a say and a stake in, um, in one's own life. Uh, that's the, 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 the autonomy piece. Um, a desire to, 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 for, for freedom to, to feel and dream and work and improve one's social standing and leave a legacy for all of these things. Humanistic autonomy is the root. That manifests in, in a lot of different ways. Organizing is one way that Black folks have pursued humanistic autonomy. Literacy is another way that Black folks have pursued this idea of humanistic autonomy. Starting families and building communities Think about the role of the black church, all efforts um, to achieve a sense of humanistic autonomy. And then there's the cultural side, is art and literature and music. And not like genres in terms of music, but the way that black folks communicate, the way that black folks turn a phrase, drawing on the rhythmic communicative traditions of West Africa so we can think about the use of percussion. All of these things, again, tools that Black folks have have become a part of the toolkit that Black folks have drawn on in pursuit of humanistic autonomy. All of these things we might refer to as the trunk. When we get to the branches in the metaphor, at least the way that I, I try to, to articulate it in the book, the branches might pick and pull from these different uh, component parts that, that comprise the trunk. So you think of, of the civil rights movement, for example, a particular for Black folks in the South, Black folks in the country, um, so forth and so on. The blues. Another example, another tradition that pulls from this broader set of, of tools, of techniques, of sensibility, so forth and so on, that pulls from this broader repertoire and manifests in a particular way. Um, and and so, 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 I, so that's a little bit more about the blues epistemology and, and, and how I try to flesh it out in the book in ways that I think are complementary um, to to the mother text, both of my book and of the Booth's epistemology idea, Clyde Woods Development Arrested. And and I think the the practical uh kind of to the last part of your question, uh I, I think if I think I think that framework, even a little bit of that framework, allows us to to see, I think black Southerners, black Mississippians, Black folks in the Mississippi Delta as human, as regular people, um, 
not as the caricatured or stereotyped ideas that we might pull from pop culture or that we might pull from news headlines, but as humans, as humans who strive in ways that are the same as those folks in other places, humans that 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 have that have desires, that have emotions, that have feelings that sometimes don't make sense when we put them together. Humans that don't always get everything right because they are what humans. Uh, and so I think, yeah. So I think that's that's some of the value of of kind of moving the bru- the blues epistemology or bringing the blues epistemology to the center of how we think about race, how we think about black folks uh, and all of the things in between. Uh, I think I think one one uh, thing that for that would allow or that allows is for us to see the black South and black Southerners as human folks. Um, and, you know, I could I could talk more because this is kind of, you know, this this gets me to my soapbox. And, and, you know, about the importance of place-based research and some of the work that I'm doing now based in Mississippi. Um, but that's at least, that's a start. That's at least a start. That was so lovely. And I'm not going to say anything else because I need to, I want to, I want to think more about mm-hmm. all that you said, but that was, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, I, I think that. there's a lot to, there to, to think about, especially as, as folks who are doing place-based research and, and just as folks who are interacting all the time with what you're calling these caricatures and these these stereotypes, and um, you know, I'm out here on the West Coast, and I'm I'm just thinking about all sorts of passing comments that I hear about about Southern life and Southern folk, and um, yeah, I think this gives a really sort of helpful lens for thinking about that experience. Yeah. Um, I want to I do want to talk about the sort of methodological notes and stuff, but before we get to sure. that, I wanted to. I mean, there were so many fascinating people in this book that you <laughs> yeah. talk about. I mean, you mentioned Miss Irene a few times. Uh, I was wondering if there was anyone that you met in the process of writing this book that really changed the way that you thought about Clark Still or Black identity, or if there were any folks in particular that you just wanted to spend a few minutes um, sharing about right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll talk about I'll talk about um, the the guy who I start chapter three with. Uh, who I call Boyd Shumpert. And and this is a guy who I meet. I meet pretty, I, I meet him pretty early in field work. When I, after, meet him pretty early after moving to Clarksdale. Uh, and we, we pretty quickly start to, we're, we're, we were about the same age at the time. Uh, he's, I think he may have been a couple years older than me, maybe a couple years older than me. Uh, but we but we start to develop a friendship pretty early, and and similar to the conversation with with Miss Irene, and 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 this same thing wasn't the case in Chapter Four. But but I start the introduction with Miss Irene, and I start Chapter Three with boys because it's it's but they are both people, and and the moments that that I that I um, that I in which I introduce them actually correspond to the moments where where a particular idea or part of the project becomes clear to me. So the, the conversation with Miss Irene is is the conversation where where the kind of macro story of the book starts to crystallize. And then there's this interaction with boys where he's supposed to meet me at this blues club in downtown Clarksdale or what I call downtown Clarksdale on the square. 
and he doesn't come and I end up being the only black person there other than the bouncer, the bartenders, and, and then there's this, there's a guy who's kind of doing, he, he's like a busboy, but also a server, like doing all doing, doing all types of, uh, or, or different types of work um, in, at the venue. And, and it's them and it's me and then it's a bunch of white folks. Uh, and it's it's that experience and the conversation afterwards when when boys and I are are going to the casino in Tunica, which is about an hour north of Clarksdale, or maybe not quite an hour. Um, it's it's in the conversation with him afterwards that that this idea of um, of place I'm making starts to starts to kind of percolate for me. Uh, the, the the idea being that. Some places where we don't see, where we don't find black folks, in some cases, like that's because black folks just didn't want to go. Like there, there was something about the place or about the history of the place or about folks' experiences in certain types of places that that registered uh, uh, at, in mass or like at, at at a collective level, such that you can go to a place like the venue where I went and not see any any black folks other than the service workers there um and the idea is, is a little I, I hope it i hope it comes across as a little more complicated than that but that's the bad bones of it um and it is with this it's, it's this conversation and then and then subsequent interactions with boys where that becomes clear and i and i mentioned boys for another reason and and this maybe does will will push us towards the methodological piece that he he becomes a key informant and one of those people who who holds me accountable uh and and who challenges me and continues to challenge me we have maintained a relationship since field work we organized um it was virtual this past year uh a uh, the the first annual uh Clarksdale like sort of Clarksdale the first uh, Juneteenth commemorating Juneteenth in Clarksdale last year and so we've maintained a pretty a pretty good relationship like friendship and relationship uh kind of in general uh but it was it was like during my time in the field uh and then after he held me accountable uh and 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 reminded me um i guess i i don't know how much i needed this after some of my early earlier experiences in the field but reminded me that just because i'm a black boy from shannon mississippi as i say i'm not a black boy from delta in mississippi i'm not a black boy from clarksdale in mississippi and that matters for for how I should move in Clarksdale, for some of the decisions that that excuse me um, that maybe it was appropriate or, or wasn't appropriate for me to make uh, as a person doing this type of work in Clarksdale. So he's someone, and I mean I could talk about I could talk about other folks, but um, but but he and Miss Irene are, are two folks that they they typically come up first in these kinds of conversations. Uh, because I think they they both offer really powerful examples of of what I think ethnography should look like, and that is, you know, you as the researcher or ethnographer being guided by the folks uh, that you are spending time with in the place, and and it was through the conversations interact and interactions with them that 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 important parts of the project kind of crystallized, materialized for me. Yeah, that, that conversation or the sort of accountability in the relationship that you're describing with boys is actually kind of, if it's perfect to sort of lead into this methodological note that you include at the end, right? Because as you say, you're doing this ethnographic work and, and 
thinking about and unpacking your own positionality, although in some ways you're coming back into a community that you identify with and a community that feels like home. It is in some ways a very new community, a community where you are an outsider. And, you know, there's, I know there's obviously debates within the field and in the social sciences in general about, you know, coming in and setting communities from the outside versus um, setting communities that we identify with and are our own. Um, And I guess I, you know, I just wanted to ask a little bit about from a project standpoint, what are some of the things that you learned in this process that you might carry with you into future ethnographic endeavors? And, um, you know, and if you want to talk a little bit more about this sort of the role of positionality and being both within the in-group and in this out-group and how that uh, played out in your work, um, that would also be lovely. I, I I have a couple of answers that that come to mind. Um, the first, and I'm and I'll just jot down this so I don't forget. Um, but the first is 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 to is to pick up on this last point about positionality. You you'll notice, and anyone and anyone who picks up the book will notice that in in the pre, in what I call the prelude in the book, there's lots of I. The the first line is I got it wrong. There's lots of I. I didn't. I didn't. I don't. I wrote. I wrote. I. 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 And it's not lost on me, <laughs> like how that might come across. And in fact, that's on purpose. That is me saying this is a book. This is a book wherein my positionality as not just a researcher, not just an ethnographer, but as a black boy from Shannon, Mississippi. I'm going to say it as often as I can. Um, and my positionality will show up in this piece of work. And as I get at toward the end of the methodological note, I think that makes this work better. I think that makes this work more effective. Um, and, 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 and I think, you know, the, 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 and the lesson I think, and I don't know, maybe lesson is overstating it. Um, but the consideration for the discipline, and maybe that's also overstating it. Um, but the, the the consideration for for folks interested in doing this type of work is to not run from the idea that your fingerprint may actually be on the work that you're doing. Uh, and in fact, I think that oftentimes our positionality can can enhance uh, can enhance how effective a piece of work is or can be. Uh, the I think one lesson that I'll to get to the to the first part of your question, uh, one lesson that I'll carry with me into into all of my work uh, from from here forward is is just like don't skip steps, don't skip steps. Uh, even if it's 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 almost like it's almost like when you were in grade school and you knew the answer to the to the to the math problem, but you lost points because you didn't show your work. It's, it's it's almost that same idea that even if things are apparent to you, even if you think you have figured something out, um, I think that the the there's there's value in 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 tracing the steps and tracking the steps. I didn't know that this was a blues project, as I've mentioned now, until a few months in, and though it was not systematic. Um, Though if I were to go back and do it over, I would perhaps do perhaps I would do lots of things differently. Um, I benefited from very meticulous and obsessive record keeping uh, and note taking, such that I could return to things that I had heard or seen right by virtue of my field notes 
I could return to things uh, and look at them in, with this with this added perspective, with this added sense of, oh, this is what the project is about. Uh, and so I think one way to sum up the thing that I'll carry with me is just don't skip steps. Don't think you know before you know. And even when you think you know, make sure you ha- make sure you can connect the dots. Make sure you have the documentation. Make sure you have, um, I think, the the theoretical chops to to be able to connect the dots. Don't skip steps. Honestly, I should probably type that out, print it out, and tape it to the side of my laptop. Remind <laughs> myself too. every single Me too. day. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh man, I'm coming back to some projects right now that um, yeah. you know I worked on like over a year ago, and just realizing even for myself my lack of meticulous note-taking and really having no idea what I was thinking one year ago. You, um, you so think you'll remember. I tell this to my students. At this point, I've taught a handful of some combination of like qualitative methods courses or ethnographic methods courses. And and I always say, you think you're going to remember. You're not going to remember. You I promise you won't remember. Write it down. And, and the thing that you know for sure you're going to remember, write it down too because you won't remember. Yeah. And the other thing to that is I have like at least seven or eight different notebooks where I write different things. So I aspire to be a person who just has one place where I write everything, (laughs) but I have not become that person yet. Um, I wanted to ask you really quick about your incredible style of writing. And I was telling a friend when I was reading this book um, in preparation for this interview that uh, it was, it just felt so easy in some ways because it was, you know, it just, it read, you know, it read, almost yeah. like a fiction book even though yeah. I, you know, I know it was an ethnography i know it was your dissertation turned into a book um yeah. and i don't know did you learn how to write like that in grad school or what <laughs> <laughs> okay Can't imagine. The, answer, the answer to that is no i did not learn how to such that that is writing I, well let me not do that i appreciate that i appreciate everything you just said uh and i am very proud of of how this book feels of how it reads um, that isn't something I, I think that part of the writing or that na- that component of the writing is definitely not something that um, that was cultivated in grad school. I think, in fact, it was something that that has been in me all along. I've, for as long as I can remember, I have had this fascination, had a fascination with writing. Um, and, and I've had a lot of practice, as as another mentor, Kiese Lehman would say, is is required of. Um, effective writing practice. I've had a lot of practice. I had a lot of practice before grad school, uh, and 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 I think I really started to find my voice after. And, and I don't know if um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a coincidence, but I think I started to find my voice after after grad school when I was sitting with the dissertation and wondering how to turn that into a book that was actually useful. Uh, and and it, it was in all of the drafts, all of the chapter drafts in, in early mornings and late nights, struggling, wrestling with the language, wrestling with words um, so that I could I could get them in a way that were the words and, and get them to a point that um, that that was both instructive and illuminating. So folks would would leave the book feeling like they've learned something or been moved in some way, but also. Um, you know, uh, uh, finding language that sounded good to just to say it plainly. I wanted to write a book that that folks would read and say, "Oh, that's a well-written book." That's important to me. It's equally important as 
as it and equally, and I'm not overstating it, it's equally important for me that folks read my work and say, that is a, a beautiful piece of art. That's a beautiful piece of creative work. It's beautiful writing. Folks to say that as they say, that's well researched. Oh wow. Theoretically, that's 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 really useful. That's something I can can take and use in my own work. All of those things are equally important to me. When when I'm when I when I present publicly on my work, it's equally important for for public present the, the visuals that I use, the flow of of a talk that I give. It's equally important for me that folks leave the encounter, leave the talk or presentation saying, wow, I've never seen visuals like that. Wow, that was really beautifully done. As they say, oh, wow, that's a really, that's a really smart research project. It's a really nuanced way of thinking about X, Y, Z. Um, and, and, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, my, I, I work with Dr. Zandria Robinson, who's at Georgetown now since I was an undergrad. She was at the University of Mississippi when I transferred here in 2009. And so I worked with her for a couple of years then, and she was on the dissertation committee and, and continues to be a mentor. Uh, and, and her writing is aspirational for me. Uh, go read This Ain't Chicago or Chocolate Cities or any of her public work. Uh, and, and, and it'll be pretty easy to see that, that I am her student, that her fingerprints are on my work. Uh, and I know I said that was the last thing. I, I guess maybe this is the last thing. Increasingly, and I think all along, I, I, I've, I've had this interest in public writing. And, and now I've, got, I've done quite a bit of public writing, CNN, Washington Post, Bitter Southern, or otherwise. And, and I think that to the extent that that kind of aspiration was already in me or a part of kind of how I saw my work developing beyond uh, beyond grad school, uh, I think that's kind of that was at play too. This this interest in in writing in ways that would be accessible to to public audiences, and and like I'm not that like I'm not smart enough to like I I have to write so I understand. <laughs> I have to write so I can follow it. I have to write in ways that make it that make whatever I'm writing about make sense to me in a practical way. Um, and so and so I, I always laugh when when folks say say something like it was an easy read or quick read, which A, I always take as a compliment and most folks typically mean it as such. Um, but, but you know, I, I laugh because it's, it's an easy read because it has to be. I'm sorry. That, I, that's, that's, that's the best I can do. That's the best I can do. Anyway, um, yeah, and I, I always, I think I said this on the, on the front end of this, I, I really enjoy um, anytime I get a chance to talk about the writing because that's something that that I, that, and maybe this is me being, you know, someone, I call myself a writer and I'm, and I'm always fascinated in hearing folks talk about the craft itself. Uh, and so maybe, maybe other people aren't as interested in hearing about process as I am, but I always enjoy talking about this part of the work. So, so I appreciate that question. Yeah. I now actually, now that you've mentioned chocolate cities, I am remembering having read it and, and picking up on, on some of the parallels and, I, you know, I mean, in so many ways, people who are doing social science research in this work are telling stories about the society around us and our communities and and the people embedded within these structures and, and, you know, the emphasis or the lack of emphasis perhaps on 
storytelling and public writing and the idea that we're conveying ideas, you know, and part of, you know, what we say, oh, just academics talking to academics, um, you know, part of that, I think, really is about what you're saying, it, writing being inaccessible, writing being uneasy, writing being difficult to grapple with. And, and while I understand that ideas can be big and ideas can be difficult to grapple with, that's so different from uh, the literal language and words being difficult to grapple with. And, you know, I think having this focus or this value around, you know, really com- conveying ideas so that people can grab onto them so that ideas aren't hoarded and ideas aren't, um, you know, restricted and exclusive to a very specific population who has four hours to sit down and read, you know, the same two paragraphs over and over again to understand it. Um, it it's something I've been thinking a lot about too. And in my own work, and, you know, I've, I've done a lot more empirical, empirical work recently. And, and in that, just the focus on scientific communication and, and what we, what assumptions and what ideas we do communicate versus which ones we don't. And, um, and what is valued in the writing, you know, where do we spend more of the time and more of the emphasis in the literal word count is something I've been reflecting a lot on. Well, so I well, really appreciate I, this. This will be a quick point. One thing that I say is, is I don't think that all work in the discipline should, should sound or feel like I don't like the blues does. I think there's, there's absolutely room for, uh, and, and I, and I love the distinction that you made between dealing with complex ideas and putting a bunch of big words in your article, in your ASR article. Um, I think that there are, that, that, that we can communicate complex ideas effectively in ways that are at least a little more accessible. May not, maybe not super publicly widely accessible, um, but, but a bit more accessible than what seems to be the norm. But even still, even saying that, I, I I think that there is room for different types of work. I think there are there, there's absolutely room for for the for the article that takes six hours to get through and you don't understand it the first or second time, um, because in a sense, you know, we are experts, and and in many cases, we are talking to other experts. Uh, and there is a lingo that I think is appropriate uh, in such cases. Uh, I, I think a part of what what my book offers as commentary for the discipline, though, is is to say that there are other ways too, and that these other ways are, and the other ways of of, of communicating our work are are important. I think important and valid um, in 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 kind of the scale of the discipline. Absolutely, and I, that's one of the things that I think brought me to this podcast in general and wanting to host and wanting to talk to authors and and folks and try to increase the accessibility of, of some of these books for the broader community is because there is so much incredible work being written. And as you're saying, it's not just about, you know, the writing itself is really beautiful and is an art, but also, you know, these are ideas that are important ideas and important ways for all of us to be able to think and reflect on how we see the world around us and figuring out ways to make uh, this sort of you know, vast amounts of information more accessible to individuals? And how do we really think about bringing books into these other public spaces and other domains um, is something that I've become more excited about recently. Um, Okay, so (laughs) we've taken up a lot of time, I could ask a lot more questions about style of writing and composition. And do you have, you know, advice on, on how how to develop the voice and stuff, but I'm actually not going to ask you about those things right now. Um, and instead, I was wondering if you could just tell us about any, you know, any ongoing projects or what's next for you. Oh yeah, so so I've got quite a bit of of 
um, kind of public creative work kind of going on now. So recently there's there's a short film um, based on something that I wrote last, this past summer. Uh, there's a short film that you can find on the Southern Foodways Alliance, uh, I think it's southernfoodwaysalliance.org. Uh, the name of the, of the short film is We Travel. The name of the essay that, that the short film uh, is based on or, or pulls from is How We Got Here. Uh, and and it's about uh, the tradition of hog slaughtering in and for me in black communities in rural Mississippi, but certainly um, this is a tradition that that extends beyond beyond black folks and beyond Mississippi. Uh, but but it's a particular story of of a particular family, my own, and 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 it does it does it, it kind of makes an argument about about some of the cultural traditions that we associate with. Uh, again, in this case, Black Southerners, Black Mississippians, uh, and and what necessitated those cultural traditions. Uh, in this case, uh, the the enduring uh, a specter in proximity of racial violence, and and so that's a it's that it's that it actually won it actually won an, an um it's it's won one in one at an independent uh, film festival the. I think it's the it's the Berlin something or another independent film festival that it recently won at, and um, it's a piece of work that I'm really proud of. That's that's again really really I think beautiful done just in terms of the visuals. I worked with the guy Ethan Payne, who's an independent filmmaker uh, based in Atlanta. Uh, the visuals are really beautiful, but I think the story also is is important, uh, which is kind of to the to the point of the conversation we just wrapped on, uh, and then. I'm working on a few oral history collections in in communities in North Mississippi. Uh, I'll I'll spare the details on those, but my work is, has, especially in the last few years, taken on this. I mean, it's always had this, but I think now I've I've kind of um, kind of moved full throttle in this direction. This kind of community facing, community engaged component. Uh, and 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 I'm also gearing up for for another pretty big ethnographic undertaking that I'm so so excited about. Uh, that that I'll I'll also spare the details on. You know that that's a book that'll that'll come out five years from now or you know three or four years from now after I've gotten into the work a little bit. But I got my hands on a lot, and it's it's I'm so so grateful that it's all the type of work that uh, that I that I live for. That I'm that that invigorate that's invigorating for me. So um, check out the check out the short film How We Travel, or not How We Travel. Check out the short film We Travel. The essay How We Got Here. You can find a bunch of my other public writing and public work on my website, bbrianfoster.com. You can find me, B Brian Foster, across uh, social media, um, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, and yeah, I guess I guess that's about it. That's all I'll plug for now. <laughs> Perfect. I, I actually was planning on putting a link to the okay. documentary into the little blog post blurb that we'll have along with this podcast, um, which I'm also actually haven't seen it yet. I saw it circulating and I'm really excited to watch it and um, can't wait to have you back on the podcast in five years when you finish your next big ethnographic <laughs> endeavor. There we um, go. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say thank you for being on the show today. I really, yeah. really enjoyed this. And Same. I, I, I really enjoyed it. This is really well done. And I think it's, I think it's really important work. Uh, and, and so I hope you keep it up. I, I don't, I don't know the origin story or the backstory, but, but I, I, I just, I, and I could ramble on, but I, I think it's really important and it's, and it's really well done. 
Uh, and so thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the thoughtful questions and for the time. Yeah. Thank you for your time. And thank you for hyping up, uh, hyping up this work and this podcast and, 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 you know, and people like you and the work that you're doing in, in sort of, you know, public writing and, um, and public sociology and, and more community-based stuff is, um, you know, it's exciting to see yeah. folks around us and, uh, who are, who are prioritizing that work and, um, and creating spaces for that. And it definitely is an inspiration to the younger generation like me, although probably not that much younger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah. Thanks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.